Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Rife. Today we're going to be talking about three of this year's Best Picture nominees. We're kind of going back and talking about them because we didn't get a chance to talk about them last year. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep. Also Todd Phillips' supervillain origin story, Joker. Ooh, dangerous. <laughs> and Ford v. Ferrari, which is James Mangold's film about car racing in yeah. the 60s. Dad movie of the year. <laughs> Welcome to Film Club. So, Dowd, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a big movie last summer. It's actually a big box office hit as well as yeah. a hit with critics, and it's been doing really well this award season. I reviewed the film last summer. Been a Tarantino fan since I was, uh, like, very young and watched Pulp Fiction at a slumber party <laughs> when I was too young to do so. And you written just, a book on him. Yeah, a, yeah while, a while back I did write a, it yeah. was sort of a primer to B-movies and exploitation movies to watch if you like Tarantino films. That cool. was, ooh, that was a while ago. Maybe don't look it up. <laughs> it needs a new chapter. Though. <laughs> it, well, I need several new chapters because uh, Django Unchained was coming out when oh, I did got the it. book. Okay. Now, I gave the movie a B plus, and you gave it a B plus as well. It can. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, I have had a, I think, a longer relationship to this movie than a lot of the other movies that have come out this year. Okay. And I think I should have given it a slightly higher grade. I think I should have given it an A minus. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I think that although seeing that this very long film will grow on you is maybe a bit of a tough sell. I do think that it's the kind of movie that rewards multiple viewings because the more you watch it, the more you feel like you're just hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters. Totally, and I think a big part of it is that that first viewing, when, when you're watching the film, you have no idea where it's going. Mm -hmm. This film entered the conversation at Cannes, and the big question was how is it gonna handle the Manson murders, mm -hmm. which sort of loom over the whole film. Yeah. We're not gonna get into that today. If you've managed to somehow not see the film, congrats, you have a pretty good movie. Yeah. Congrats. But we don't want to spoil it for you then. It's um, out on digital now. It's not on streaming yet, but you can rent it. Yep, that's right. But I think a lot of that first viewing, for, for a lot of people, myself mm -hmm. included, was about anticipating where this thing was going to go. Mm -hmm. Once you know the architecture of the film, you can just kind of, and I think this is true of a lot of films, but it's maybe especially true of something like this that's so languid, you can just kind of appreciate its beats without the tension of where is this thing going to drop me off. Yeah, and I think the, like you were saying, the languid nature of the plot that, you know, not a lot happens in the middle section of the, the movie, it's a lot of conversations. Mm -hmm. I think that that languidness actually, when the first time you watch it, increases your anxiety about what's coming because you're like, okay, how much longer does this movie have? Yeah. What's gonna happen? And yeah, knowing how it ends, I think really frees you up to appreciate the smaller, even quieter moments in the Definitely. film. Definitely, and there's yeah. a lot of those, honestly. I mean, mm -hmm. Tarantino is said to have coined the expression hangout movie. Mm -hmm. um, he was talking about Rio Bravo, Great film, and it's his conception there are certain movies that what they're really about is just hanging out with the characters. Right. That the plot is really just an excuse for us to spend time with these characters. And I think there's a, that's a big component of what he's doing in, I mean, I, I think it's a component in several of his films, but mm -hmm. I think this is the one that comes closest to being a pure hangout movie. Yes. In the sense that we spend so much time in this film just hanging out with our main characters. Yes, I agree with that. In particular, I think about two scenes when I think about the hangout movie aspect. One, I think about the scene where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is Rick Dalton, who, if you haven't seen the movie, he's he is a Western TV star, was in his prime in the 50s and early 60s, and now it is 1969, and he's kind of fading into irrelevance in middle age, and he's really not handling it very well. <laughs> <laughs> so he's guest starring on a Western TV show, a real TV show called Lancer. And there's a scene where he's sit there. He's sitting around. If you've ever been on a movie set, it's a lot of uh, hurry up and wait. So they're in the wait part of the, the day. 
and he's sitting with a little girl who's co-starring on the episode with him and her young actress, who I thought she did a fabulous job. Her mm -hmm. name's Julia Butters, and they have a whole conversation about the book that he's reading, and it sort of becomes this larger thing about the new generation coming up and replacing him and all that totally. stuff. So that scene is a little more thematically loaded. But the purest hangout scene in the movie, in my opinion, is when Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio, and then Cliff Booth, who's his loyal stuntman slash sidekick assistant, maybe heavy when needed. Played by Brad Pitt. Yep, played by Brad Pitt. Yeah. They're sitting at his house watching his episode of FBI. Yeah. And it's so funny. I could just sit with those guys for hours and just hear Brad Pitt be like, oh, hey, look at that. It's kind of like a Beavis and Butthead episode, honestly. Almost. <laughs> They're just like sitting around, like kind of like like just enjoying, yeah. enjoying the episode, making cracks here and there. Yeah. Just cracking beers, yeah. being dudes. At one point, DiCaprio says, that guy's an asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> About one of the actors. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I think we shot this in Malibu. I don't remember. Yeah, totally. And then, yeah, and then Cliff's all like, hey, good job, buddy. And he's like, yeah, thanks. It's, yeah. yeah, I find that whole aspect of it just really charming. And I think uh, Brad Pitt is a very strong contender for the Best Supporting Actor Oscar this year. I, I think, think it's sewed up at yeah, this he's, point. It's, he's going to win. Right? Although, yeah. I... I it's a co-lead, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah? I think they're both leads. I mean, I don't think the movie is any more slanted towards DiCaprio DiCaprio's character than it is towards Pitts. No. I think in the hierarchy of their relationship, mm -hmm. he's a supporting player. Sure. You know? Sure. But in the, the movie proper, in terms of screen time, in terms of prominence of, of their roles, mm -hmm. I think it's a lead performance. Right. I just think this is one of those cases where Pitt could, best actor this year is very competitive, Pitt could can and probably will win supporting Yes, actor. I think, I mean, he won the Golden Globe and the SAG, so yeah. it's about sewed up for him. Totally. Uh, that's a, Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if you went into screen time, Cliff might actually have more screen time yeah, than totally. Rick does in yep. the movie, which leads us to another thing that people talk about once upon a time in Hollywood. Margot Robbie. <laughs> yes, people with yep. their stopwatches out and making their little <laughs> tallies watching the performance. And I made this point when we talked about The Irishman, but I will maintain that that is an extremely reductive way of looking at the performance. And uh, and I find it odd. There are also critiques. It's like, yeah, but she just seems so nice. It's like, what if Sharon Tate was a nice person? Yeah, totally. What if she was just, like, sweet? And, I mean, she has a pretty charmed life, so it's not hard to extrapolate that she might be in a good mood all the time. Totally. <laughs> and I, I think it also denies partially what Tarantino is doing mm -hmm. in this film. The film is set in 1969, the year of the Manson murders. Yes. Most of the film, however, is not is set months before that. Yes. Uh, it's actually set over maybe two days. Two days, it's a weekend. Yeah, okay, mm -hmm. yep. So we're just sort of following these characters around. Rick lives next door. Mm -hmm. to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Now that is fictional. Yes. Rick and, and Cliff are both fictional characters. Right, and the house is fictional, I think. Yeah, but they live next door to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate is a character in the film, played mm -hmm. by Margot Robbie. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a ton of dialogue. No. But I, again, I think that actually... She has actually, a lot of screen time, though. She does. She has a fair amount of screen time. She also has what I think is maybe the best scene in the movie, mm -hmm. which is when she goes and sees herself on screen. Yeah, I thought that's you know? the scene you were going to bring up because yeah. it is a very affectionate scene and it's just about loving movies and, and I found it kind of touching too because she just seems so proud of herself yeah. you know and there's sort of a theme in this movie about like love of movies and love of acting and you know love of your career and mm -hmm. just I don't know how to put it besides an appreciation of how cool it is to get to be in movies yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. well and Tarantino loves actors sure you know he's I even think the plot of this film is sort of similar to what Tarantino does as a filmmaker mm. which is he rescues these actors mm. he's asking these actors he loved earlier in their career when he was a younger man and people from from the 70s who who have seen sort of dips in their career. Mm, yeah. Rick is actually kind of like Rick is the type of of actor who is waiting for his 
you could see him like if he were a real person in the '90s. Tarantino would cast him. Would cast him, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, like in, in like the same way he did and with John Travolta. Forgive me, I've never said the name out loud. I've only seen it in print. Clue Guled. Gulager, Gulager, he has a small role in the film and he's a washed up cowboy guy. Right, yeah. exactly. So he's doing that kind of stuff all the time, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, he did it with Jackie Brown as well, with Pam Greer and also yes. with Robert Forrester. Yes, absolutely. In peace. And uh, I think that his affection for actors comes through really strong in this movie and really strong in that scene when yeah. we're just watching her be so delighted at the audience's reactions to her performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is very much a film about kind of the agony and the ecstasy of being an actor. Yeah, totally. You know? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> like it's about people who have such a difficult time sometimes with uh, the realities of, of a Hollywood career, the ups and downs of it. Mm -hmm. you know. And Sharon Tate is on, a, on the up when the movie begins. And Rick's on the way down. Dalton's on the way down, mm -hmm. yep. And I think it also, I, I mean, it is kind of a sweet movie. And mm -hmm. the more I see it, the more I think it's kind of a sweet and wistful movie that's about just like, man, wouldn't it be great if the good times could last forever and you could just drink beers with your yeah. buddies all day and your career could be going great and things never have to change. Yeah. There's sort of a middle-aged wistful to it of staring down the barrel of your life and being like, man, this is great, but it's going to be over someday. There's an anxiety to it, too, though, mm -hmm. because uh, he is looking at people who's, I mean, beyond just the, the real life element that intrudes on the film at some point, we'll say, mm -hmm. he is looking at people who, who are at a crossroads in their career mm -hmm. and they are on kind of the downturn. Yep. And I sense an anxiety in Tarantino uh, from this film. Yeah. I could see that because I kind of also interpret it more broadly as being middle-aged and, be, and mm -hmm. being on the downward slope of your life. I think, but I think it's also about changes in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're, we are at a, I think, you know, 1969 is a turning, is roughly a turning point for Hollywood cinema. For um, sure, yeah, the late 60s were a huge turning point in totally. cinema. We're like moving away from the studio system as it was into a new reality, the, the sort of new Hollywood reality mm -hmm. of, of the industry. And I think we're now at a point where somebody like Tarantino I mean, this this thing was a huge hit. He usually makes hits. Hatefully, it was not a hit. I was especially pleased to like this movie as much as I did because I think that Django Unchained and Hatefully are the two weakest films for his career. I would agree, yeah. actually. I, I think they are, too. I, yeah. I think this that, was a return to form of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think there's a, I mean, in its own way, this this is a history film, too. But those films, they're, uh, Tarantino at his worst uh, reminds me of somebody who cannot stop badgering you about the things that he likes. Mm -hmm. you know? And it can, it can be just very kind of bitter and spiteful. Hatefully, it is yeah. a bitter, spiteful movie. For sure. But Tarantino has to be looking at the state of the industry now and thinking, how long can... I mean, he's, he's talked about retiring after 10 movies anyway, right, and sure. the next one would be... Would we be shall see. We'll see, you know. <laughs> but he has to kind of be looking at the industry and going, how much room is there left for something like this? Even yeah. though this was a hit. For know? me. For me, you know? yes. Like, yeah, like, as someone who does 70 millimeter road shows. Right. You know, Do I have a films? future in this industry? Yeah. You know? So that anxiety, I think, colors a lot of it. And another thing that I really like about the movie and um, does reward uh, multiple viewings is the meticulousness of the production design. Yes. We did an article on AV Club that was breaking down all the little, you know, uh, visual and uh, dialogue references in the movie. And Tarantino really has recreated sort of his vision of a perfect past, which also, incidentally, is his childhood yeah. in Los Angeles. And yeah. that by creating that perfect moment, he, he is making a statement on nostalgia and wanting things to be the same as they always have been and how maybe that's, you know, never possible. So if you looked at last year's movies, mm -hmm. I think if you asked yourself, what is what was the big conversation piece of last year? Mm -hmm. What was the movie that inspired the most talk 
online. Well, uh, the last film we covered, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is a strong contender. It was but... until until <laughs> yes, until a couple Venice. months later yes. at the Venice Film Festival, where Todd Phillips' Joker premiered. I think everyone kind of expected this one to be a hot button mm -hmm. topic. The screening we went to had uh, metal detectors and more security than you usually see at these screenings because that was an early narrative about the film that it was going to spark all this violence in movie theaters, which was highly like speculative. And... I'm glad it didn't happen. <laughs> well, of course. Of yeah. <laughs> yeah, some would argue that the movie is is too banal to do that. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't necessarily argue that. I'm kind of an agnostic on Joker. Do you, do you think that it's a dangerous film? I don't think it's a dangerous film. Yeah. I, I understood why people thought that about it. Right. Although I will say that a lot of that was coming from people who hadn't yet seen the film. Yes, that's true. You know, it was just a Reactions raw speculation about it, right? Mm -hmm. So I, we should probably say something about what the, what the film is for yes. those who don't know. I, I, I don't know how it's possible. You it's wouldn't called know what this Joker. Is now. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Phillips, who made the Hangover films, had an idea a couple of years ago that he wanted to do an origin story of the Joker, mm -hmm. the Batman's main heavy, mm -hmm. you know, homicidal clown, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, perhaps significantly, a character that had already made the leap into, you know, uh, cinematic mainstream respectability with Heath Ledger getting an Oscar for playing the Joker. Sure, of course, yep. yep. Uh, he's also been betrayed by Jack Nicholson, by Jared mm -hmm. Leto, somewhere recently, Mark Hamill voiced him on Batman the Animated yeah. Series. That's one of the more popular takes. This version of him is played by Joaquin Phoenix. Mm -hmm. The film is set in Gotham City in roughly 1981. Yeah, uh, the film never says, there. but yeah. um, it's, yeah. it's around Gotham there. City being a stand-in for New York here. Because yeah. It, yeah. I mean, this is very much a New York from the New Hollywood yep. era. You yep. know? Very obviously a New York as seen through Martin Scorsese's lens. Yes, very much. Um, uh, two Scorsese films are heavy influences on, on this one. Taxi Driver and also The King of Comedy. Yep. Both with De Niro, mm -hmm. who plays a supporting role in the film. He plays uh, Murray Franklin. He's a, he's a talk show host on the film. He's basically in the role that Jerry Lewis had in The King of Comedy. Mm -hmm. So we follow Phoenix's character. He's a kind of for-hire clown, and he ha suffers from a kind of unidentified, unspecified, specified mental illness and the city is cutting funds to healthcare options and mental health options mm -hmm. and the movie is sort of about looking what happens to this character as this city kind of abandons him. I mean I do agree with Joker that it's essential to have you know public mental health clinic facilities. I would agree too. I don't think it's actually a super controversial <laughs> no, it's point not, to No make. it's not. Um, I mean. <laughs> and I, there are things I, I, I actually quite like about this film. Yeah. Um, I think for the most part what I do like about this movie is that we're now living in the age of the superhero industrial complex, you know, there are, there's a new superhero movie every month at this point, mm -hmm. you know, and some of the studios, specifically Marvel, has kind of turned this into an assembly line. Yeah. They all operate by a certain formula, and I, I mostly like those films. I like the Marvel movies. I know you're I, not a big fan. Well, I just don't keep up with them because yeah. they're very well covered by our staff and, you know, like I'm more of a Star Wars girl. So. <laughs> yeah. And this has its own formula in a way. One could say it's Well, let me ask you a question Scorsese. about this. Why did this movie, why didn't Logan get the same kind of attention? Because you want to mm. talk about doing something different with a superhero movie and taking a more serious tack in it. That movie did that. It's a good question. That's a lot better film. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. Logan is a better movie than yeah. Joker. Then why, why is Joker getting all these Oscar nominations? It's a good question. I mean, I think that, uh, for one thing, I do think that the craft in, in Joker is maybe better than the craft in Logan. Yeah, that's Logan's fair. a well-made film, but I think that... But it's in, more pulpy. It's more comic booky. It is. It is a little bit more. This thing sort of wears its pretensions of seriousness on mm. its sleeve, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a movie that announces, honestly, with almost every moment, that this is a serious work of art. Yeah, it's capital S serious. <laughs> I, I, the thing is, I don't think you have to agree with the film mm -hmm. to, to have fun with it. Okay. It's a very self-serious film in a lot of ways. Yes, which is um, why... 
the thing that kind of made me roll my eyes when I was watching it is the deeper it gets into Batman lore, the just the goofier I think the movie. Is. I would agree. The movie does sort of say like, oh, you know, this this isn't your this isn't your kid brother's Batman movie. But then they keep fucking bringing up. But then Batman. It, it, it does the same thing that that a lot of comic book movies does, which is that it eventually finds it it ties itself to that mythology. Yes. You know, a purer version of this maybe would have said. You know what? We're just we're just going to look at this character, yeah. and we're not going to make all these inways into the Batman mythology. If there had been no mention of anything in the Batman universe up until the very end of this movie, I would have respected that. I enjoy Phoenix in it as well. I I, I agree sure, that it's not his actor. best performance. It is maybe a more showboating performance from mm -hmm. him than we're used to. I think it's a mannered portrait of mental illness. He really throws himself into the role physically, which, yes. which is cool. He's very bony, and he also gets yeah. that kind of angular quality to the way that the Joker moves as a character. Yeah, yeah. He has these Physical. long limbs, you know. As a physical performance, I do think it's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do think the craft is pretty strong, mm -hmm. even if the movie is kind of doing, I, I watched, I've seen it twice, and, and mm -hmm. I, I think it's kind of doing an imitation of a serious art movie, mm. but the pleasures are still kind of, there, yeah. you know, the cinematography is beautiful. The as cinematography you said. is really yeah. good, and I quite like the score. To be yeah, honest, yeah, the score is good too. It's, it's super bombastic, but it's mm -hmm. also really effective. And I think that some of the best scenes in the movie benefit from that music. Um, and there are scenes where I think that this approaches the movie that it really wants to be, mm -hmm. such as the scene after Joaquin's character uh, Arthur Fleck commits his first act of violence. Right. He kills three guys on a subway, which, by the way, is that whole scene is a reference to a, a, a race-related attack in the early 80s, which is mm. one way in which this film kind of hedges its bets, I mm -hmm. think. Like, like if, if it were really, oh, if it really yeah, had the like, courage of its convictions, If the Joker might, was racist. Right. Yeah. But the movie doesn't want to risk that kind of... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, there's the big scene where Arthur's had enough and he mm -hmm. dyes his hair green and he turns into the Joker. And it's supposed to be this big, serious moment. And then he undercuts it with a Gary Glitter needle drop. What? But I kind of like that scene, too. I, I know I'm in that minority so among our hockey. particular circle. But I think that scene works because at heart, Arthur is a dork. Arthur is the type of guy who would hear that music at like a ball game, uh -huh. and in his head would think like, "Imagine myself on uh, like like center stage dancing to that." I think he's you're adore. extrapolating a little much. No, on the no, I, I really think that he's maybe Phillips thinks it's a genuinely cool needle drop. I think that that is a needle drop that Arthur would enjoy and pick for himself. He's hearing that that shit in his head, you know. Sure, but. I I don't know. I just think that Phillips genuinely thought it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I, I think it's deliberately dorky, personally, I mean, but we, we'll about, agree to disagree on this point. That's a that's yeah. a interesting point, because the movie is very much from his point of view, so I mean, okay, he's, I'll consider it. <laughs> I remember talking with a, a, another uh, Chicago critic, Nick Allen, about this when, when I saw it for the second time in Chicago, and how if Arthur were a comic in 2019, he would probably actually have kind of a following. There are people yeah. who would dig his anti-comedy. Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, what would he call it? The like, you know. It's like it's like a little Neil Hamburgian, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, if Neil Hamburger was serious. Was serious, yeah, exactly. Yes. If that was a sincere act. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there probably is somebody out there doing that shtick. Yeah, totally. And they probably really loved the movie Joker. <laughs> yep. This movie, I don't hate it. 
I don't think it's one of the worst films of the year. Mm-hmm. because We it, did list it as one of the worst films yes, of the year, which did. is controversial. Yes, a lot of people vote on that, is yep. all I have to say. A number of writers vote we, on that. Yep. Um, I we considered overruling them because, yeah, I mean, neither of us think it's that bad. I think it's, um, like, pretty mediocre, honestly. Yeah. It's a mediocre movie with, like you said, nothing really in particular to say. It's got some good points. The cinematography is mm-hmm. good at times. Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor, obviously, even though this, you know, maybe just you should actually just watch You Were Never Really Here instead. But, (laughs) you know, he did a good job in the movie. He really threw himself into it. So I don't think that it's worthless as like as a piece of filmmaking. It's just kind of like a dumber rehash of already existing good movies. It's taking a Scorsese movie and putting Batman in it. It reminds me of being in freshman screenwriting class. <laughs> but this movie, you know, even if it's not actually, you know, real world dangerous, mm-hmm. it is sort of does it did seem to me to be designed to provoke hostile reactions to own the libs, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know if it has that coherent of an ideology. Oh, you don't really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I don't know if it's particularly interested in trolling. Uh, really? Because yeah. the whole thing to me seemed like one big exercise in a movie just designed to make the elites mad. Uh, see, I think it's a hundred percent interested in capital. I think there's something a little opportunistic about its its use of uh, particular imagery. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I think it want, very much wants to be a film that's tapping into the zeitgeist mm-hmm. and in a, in a kind of general cultural anxiety. Okay. I think it's doing it in kind of a wishy-washy way. Yeah, general um, general is definitely the word for the sort of anxiety yeah. that's being expressed right. in the film. Yeah. And there, I mean, the, the movie, there are real topics to be gleaned from the film, whether or not the film's doing it intelligently or, or the film's doing it thoughtfully is another question. Right, definitely, um, definitely. Yeah. I suppose that it's a matter of taste, whether, you know, like whether you think that all the movie's elements fit together or not, obviously it's very controversial, mm-hmm. but there is one way that it's very interesting in a movie to watch is that it does set a precedent for R-rated DCEU movies, like for example, uh, Birds of Prey, which is coming out in a few weeks, is going to be R-rated, mm-hmm. and it looks to have a very strong director's point of view in that one, yeah. too. And even though this isn't an official DCEU movie, if it means that we're going to switch things up and allow creators more leeway in comic book movies, I'm cool with that. And that's the thing I like the most about it, honestly, about, about Joker, is in an age when we have so many comic book movies, I really like to see one that has some kind of vision. I mean, mm-hmm. I do think that this one is kind of borrowed. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's kind of cosplaying Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. but just just seeing one that has an aesthetic identity, one that has uh, some kind of philosophy, even if it's if it's a shop-worn one or kind of a shallow one, just a movie that has a visual sense that's a little bit different than the rest of these. All right, Dad, and then we got another movie. You know, the movies we've been talking about today, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joker. One could argue that the protagonists of the film, the protagonists of the film are male, and perhaps a lot of their fans are male. <laughs> and I like male movies a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like this one, which is the dad movie of 2019. <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari is the film. What did you say? If this is a dad movie, then I, you guess you're a dad. I guess I'm a dad. <laughs> Call me dad. Because I enjoyed this film very much. Yeah. It's directed by James Mangold, who made Logan, mm-hmm. 
and it stars Matt Damon as Carol Shelby, who is a stock car race driver. It's 1966 in California. He's retired. Yes, he's um, retiring. He's been forced medically to retire from, mm -hmm. from the sport. Mm -hmm. So he gets approached by the heads of the Ford Motor Company, who are entering into what you could really just call, like, to be crude, you could call it a dick measuring contest yeah. with, with Ferrari yeah. in uh, Italy, I believe, over who can make the fastest car in the world. Totally. And so he hires a race car driver from England named Ken Miles to help develop this car. And after, you know, some, some trial and error, stops and starts, they take it to the Le Mans race in France, which mm -hmm. is a famous long distance race. And it's 24 hours, right? Yes, 24 hours straight yep. of racing. Which is insane, by the it's way. It's absolutely insane. <laughs> and it's very dangerous. So dangerous. You're riding in some sort of experimental car yeah. with a motor that like could take off into the air at any moment. Yeah. And no. you're on no sleep. No, it's extremely dangerous. Totally. <laughs> Which is something the movie acknowledges, and I really yeah. like that about it. I actually think the racing scenes in this are terrific. Oh, the racing scenes are very yeah. good in this, yeah. Um, Mangold really gets the speed, yes. but he also, there's a coherence to them. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows how to position the camera in such a way that we have a good sense of where a car is in relation to other cars, mm -hmm. but he's also getting the velocity, and he's getting, the film opens with Carol Shelby mm -hmm. in Le Mans before he's forced into retirement, yep. and it's raining, and it's just this, it's almost this apocalyptic scene, Yeah. and it really gives you a sense right out the gate of this of this pretty long movie, just how dangerous this particular pastime is. Yes, I'm so relieved that we are coming out from the shadow of Michael Bay, which hung over <laughs> action films all throughout. You know, this isn't really an action film; it's just got action scenes yeah. in it. The clarity is being prioritized yeah. in action scenes again, and Mangle does do a very good job of. You know, you, you'll have scenes where there's six cars coming down the track, but you know which one our hero is in always. Totally. Which yep. is uh, difficult to do. It's, I would argue that the direction is quite good in this Oh, case. no, I, I yeah. think it's very good. I mean, I, I think Mangold can be a little inconsistent. Uh, mm. I, I, we were talking about Logan before when we were talking about mm -hmm. Joker. I like that movie a lot. That's, I think, one of the better modern comic book films. Mm -hmm. I don't always think it's terribly well shot, even though there's a ton of very violent action in that mm -hmm. film. I actually don't think all the action is that great. Right. But the car racing scene scenes in this really impressed me. He has his merits as a filmmaker. I don't think anything he's done technically as a director has impressed me as much as those scenes. Yes, I agree. And well, in this film, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of a film that, you know, we were talking about once upon a time in Hollywood earlier in the late 60s. This film reminds me of a film that would have been made in the Hollywood of mm -hmm. the late 60s. Yeah. And 100% Steve McQueen would have played the Ken Miles role <laughs> if this movie had been made in the late 60s because Steve McQueen was into uh, race car driving. He made a movie called Le Mans in 1969. Totally. So it reminded me of a film from the 60s, but with better car racing scenes. Yeah. You know, they don't totally. have to film them like from far away <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> like yeah, yeah. they used to back then. You're right, its values are sort of are old fashioned mm -hmm. in a way. It like, is. This is a movie that sort of celebrates men at work. Mm -hmm. There's sort of some, something a little hawksian about and that. And the relationships know? of that men have at work with each, with each other. Each yeah. other yeah. Because a lot of it is about the relationship between Carol Shelby mm -hmm. and Ken Miles. They're played by Matt Damon and Christian Bale. I would say of the two performances, Bale's is the bigger one. One. It's kind of the yes. showier one. Although I will, um, once again, to bring it back around to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we had two big movie stars doing good old boy accents this uh -huh. year. And while DiCaprio's performance was better, I'll give Damon the edge on the accent. He you think he really nailed the, the accent? accent. Yeah. That's cool. I've known some good old boys <laughs> in my life, and they talk like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Bale is very entertaining in this film. I mean, he's kind of playing a character who's not so different than his character in The Fighter. Yeah. He's this kind of hothead. I mean, I think that his first scene, he like hurls a wrench at Damon, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, uh, yeah. His whole thing is... out of the race. Yeah. He's like old... a man of principle, yeah. you know? He doesn't play by anybody's rules, but his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's one um, of those guys. But it's very fun. A lot of the movie is just him driving in cars, yelling things like, Crikey! <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yo, wake up! Yeah, you know, it's just, like, just really fun. Yeah, the and and the whole and the movie has you know a big stick it to the man element where the yeah. guys at Ford are just you know dinguses that don't know anything about being a man. They think being a man's wearing a suit. Well, guess right. what? Right, it's basically pitting professionalism against corporate interests. I mean, the mm-hmm. movie isn't really about, despite the title Ford v Ferrari. The movie is really like Ford versus real professionals. Yeah, Carol and Ken versus the world, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and against the because over and over again over the course of the film. A lot of it is about the obstacles. One could say that the the, the, the race really is not the real obstacle they're facing. It's how do we get through to these pig-headed executives, basically. I mean, Josh Lucas plays one of them. Josh mm-hmm. Lucas has made a career out of playing, <laughs> like... A stooge. People you... Yes, stooges you love to see thwarted. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So he's very well cast in that respect. Um, yeah. He's always the voice of, like, no, you can't do that, or no, we're going in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I have to confess, I've, I've, I found that very rousingly entertaining yeah, in fun. an old-fashioned way. Just watching these, like, old-school, down-to-earth, like, mm-hmm. uh, professionals, like, they just want to do their job as well as they can, is but the there, idea. What I enjoyed about it was that it was a film about masculinity that also prioritized being a good dad. Like, mm-hmm. Ken has kids, and he gets along well with his wife, and she's just not like a nag at his ear, like, why you gotta leave to right. go work at these cars all the time? Right, no, she's attracted she has, to the fact, yeah, to, to his line of work. They're well paired, and they love yeah, each yeah. other, yeah. and I, and it's always, you see the nagging wife, or maybe the crying wife, sitting at home crying next to the phone so much, that even though the film is very much about men and masculinity, I appreciated that you had a character in it who was, you know, like a knowledgeable woman. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think they thread that needle really well Mm -hmm. because she's into it too. Yeah. You know, she she likes racing. She, it's one of the things that attracts She knows a lot about him. cars. Yep. Yep. But she also understands the risks. I mean, again, mm-hmm. the movie foregrounds very early on how dangerous this this line of work is. And she is occasionally has to be a voice of reason. She's mm-hmm. like, listen, I get why you do this. Like, I love it too. But you've got a kid. You have a kid now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the movie, I think, handles that sensitively. And, and you're right. She's never a shrew. Yeah, which I always appreciate. And I like models of masculinity that aren't overtly, like, toxic, you Mm -hmm. know, and aggressive. And I found this to be a rather wholesome depiction (laughs) of men and male friendships (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, uh, ambition and career and all that kind of stuff. I found it to be a very wholesome depiction of all of that, which was fun. And it added to the old-fashioned element of it. I would place it in the 60s specifically in that transition period Mm -hmm. because, you know, the kind of stick-it-to-the-man individualistic Mm -hmm. thing is is very of that era. Very much so. Yeah. Well, folks, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening. We're actually going to be talking about some other Best Picture nominees that we missed throughout the year. We'll do that in a couple weeks. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about Jojo Rabbit Mm -hmm. and also Parasite, everyone's favorite. (laughs) If you are interested in hearing us talk about more of these films, we actually did episodes on a few of the other nominees. We have episodes on The Irishman, Marriage Story, 1917, and help me out with the last one, Little Women. Little Women, there we go. (laughs) So uh, you can look at those are in the archives. You can listen to them in podcast form as you are now, or you can watch video versions. Great, and while you're checking us out, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Thanks for joining us. I'm Katie Reif. I'm Alex Dobb. Thanks.